Welcome to Critical Matters, a sound critical care podcast covering a broad range of topics related to the practice of intensive care medicine. And now, your host, Dr. Sergio Zanotti. For the last 15 years, an enormous emphasis has been placed on improving the outcomes of patients with sepsis and septic shock. There has been a big push for early identification of sepsis and implementation of time-sensitive therapies, including broad-spectrum antibiotics and fluids. At the same time, growing concerns for increasing antibiotic resistance have led to calls for rational utilization of antibiotics and efforts to decrease unneeded exposure to antibiotics in patients who do not have proven infections. In 2017, the FDA approved the use of a procalcitonin assay to help guide the starting and stopping of antibiotic treatment in patients with suspected lower respiratory tract infections in the emergency department or hospital. In this episode of Critical Matters, we will discuss this topic. Our guest is Dr. David Wong. Dr. Wong is an associate professor, Departments of Critical Care Medicine, Emergency Medicine, and Clinical and Translational Science at the University of Pittsburgh Medical School. He is a director of the Multidisciplinary Acute Care Research Organization, MACRO, the administrative core director of CRISMA Center, and also serves as the associate medical director for the Transplant Intensive Care Unit at UPMC Montefiore. Dr. Wong has extensive research experience, and his research focuses on multicenter clinical trials that span the ED and ICU. He served as medical monitor of the PROCESS trial, a leader for the ROSE trial, and was the principal investigator of the Procalcitonin Antibiotic Consensus Trial, PROACT, that was recently published this year, and that will be the focus of our discussion. David, welcome to Critical Matters. Thank you, Jojo. So I think that maybe we could start with a very basic kind of uh, explanation of procalcitonin, what happens in health, what happens in, in, in acute illness and infection, and how it became of interest for a potential biomarker for infections. Sure. So, um, so ordinarily in healthy, pe- in healthy people, procalcitonin it's a, it's a precursor of the hormone cos- uh, of the hormone calcitonin, and it's made by the the thyroid, and then and then certain other uh, uh, organs. But when you get sick, forget when, when you get sick, basically forget everything about endocrinology. Uh, it's no longer you, should, you shouldn't think of you shouldn't think of calcitonin or anything. Uh, Beat Mueller, uh, arguably the 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 foremost leader in, in procalcitonin research, sometimes describes it. He's written he's he's described it as a hormokine, like a, a hormone cytokine, in the sense that when somebody gets 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 septic or uh, infected with a bacterial infection, um, amazingly, procalcitonin seems to be constitutively expressed by almost every tissue type in the body. Um, so I think the first, uh, I think one of the first observations of procalcitonin was around in the early 90s or, or, or late 80s where um, where those authors noticed that, hey, procalcitonin seems to go sky high in, in general with bacterial infection, but very weirdly is actually low in viral infection. And then the uh, implications for for patient care um, became obvious with such with such an, an observation. Uh, and then and then actually um, uh, and actually after that, um, there's relatively few uh, basic science type papers uh, with, with with an extensive uh, with an extensive record though of um, of uh, human research. And, and the, the reason why we think it goes up so so acutely and so um, prominently in bacterial infections is because it sounds like LPS or endotoxin is a very potent precursor of the messenger RNA that actually stimulates the production of procalcitonin. Is that correct? That's yeah. The, that's one of the main mechanisms, at least. And and again, it's apparently released by by almost every almost every type of tissue uh, in the body. Yeah. Which is quite quite interesting, um, and 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 then and then further basic science papers have noted that at least in general, viral infections actually su- suppress the release of procalcitonin. Okay, and I think that that's a good starting point to have an understanding of how 
what we mostly learn in medical school as a hormone, like you said, also has a cytokine um, aspect or a, almost like a dual personality. And in infections, specifically in bacterial infections, has been seen to be secreted in large amounts throughout the body and multiple t t types of tissue. So for many years, it sounds like procalcitonin has been um, heavily studied and utilized in Europe mostly. Obviously, we'll talk about how it came, I mean, to be approved and, and, and what led to the PROACT study. But could you give us a little bit of what, what the literature, I mean, just broad uh, strokes of what the literature has shown in Europe and kind of what served for the basis of your thought process in designing the PROACT study in the, in the last couple of years? Yeah, sure. So, um, so <laughs> a couple of years ago, I got curious as to how troponin came to replace CKMB. Um, I, I was a second year resident when I was told, okay, start ordering tropes now, but nobody actually explained to me why. Um, so the, the history of how troponin replaced CKMB is somewhat analogous. Actually, actually, it's quite analogous to to uh, to procalcitonin in the sense that initially it started with a lot of observational studies, both troponin research and and procalcitonin. And so there's a, there's a ton of observational studies um, uh, looking at PCT and to summarize all of them, um, although the, the, the overall signal is that procalcitonin outperforms in terms of um, sensitivity, specificity, whatever whatever performance characteristic um, you choose, generally seems to outperform uh, other markers such as white blood cell count, IL-6, lactate, CRP, um, in terms of differentiating bacterial versus viral infection, um, sepsis versus sterile inflammation, et cetera. Now, not every paper says this. There are, there, there are certainly papers um, looking at, for example, aspiration where procalcitonin doesn't do very well in differentiating um, sterile inflammation versus, versus um, a, a microbial infection. But but if you looked at the last, gosh, there's probably like a thousand observational studies. In general, um, that's what that's what the the overall findings are for the observational studies. Um, so then uh, the RCT started. Um, oh, I, I shouldn't make a one one sidebar is that. The, the big advantage that troponin research had was that they had an objective gold standard, which was uh, echo findings. Uh, the huge issue with infection and sepsis research is that there is no gold standard to define uh, infection. So, for example, as we all know, uh, even in even in rip roaring septic shock, a third to half of patients are culture negative. Um, and then, and then for regular old community acquired pneumonia, there was a New England paper a couple of years, like just two three years ago, where even with research level molecular diagnostics, uh, a significant minority of patients were still uh, microbe negative. So, so that's a huge huge problem with infection and sepsis research. And so, studies have done stuff like having a, a clinical adjudication committee of, of an ID doc, an ED doc, a critical care doc, et cetera, retrospectively look at you know, the entire patient's record and then decide. Um, but that's obviously subjective. And when you're making a decision um, on a sick patient right in front of you, obviously obviously you don't have you know all the future data. Um, so what the Swiss pioneers did, led by uh, Beat Mueller, was, I thought, Really clever. They did. They decided to do an RCT um, where half the patients got procalcitonin-guided care and the other half did not. And then they just looked at the patient outcomes. So then the patient outcome became the gold standard, rather than an endless circular debate as to as to um, as to what's 
the gold standard. Um, and I think that, then, sorry to interrupt, but I think that's an important point, right? Because one of the challenges we have with sepsis is that it's a syndrome, right? And I like to think about it, infection with or without organ failure, infection with or without shock. But ultimately, what we really care as clinicians is does whatever we apply help us not define the syndrome, but improve outcomes. So that, I mean, like you said, is an important distinction and quite a smart move by Mueller and, and, and his group of investigators. Yeah, it was really great. It was really great. Um, so then what they, so then they did a series of, of, of trials. Um, most of them centered around um, emergency department patients with lower respiratory tract infection. So, um, and in general, um, actually all of them found uh, reduction in antibiotics and and the, and the larger study, PROHAS, published in JAMA in 2009, um, showed that it was safe in the sense that um, in the sense that uh, adverse events in the Procastone arm were um, were not higher in the um, uh, uh, care arm. So that was so those trials were were pretty impressive and, and really caught the world's attention. And then there were also um, other trials, of course, um, non, uh, like in, in clinics, uh, a number in the ICU. Um, uh, as well. And, and in terms of what what they were showing, I mean, and like you said, basically, a large, a growing number of trials were showing that if you used procalcitonin guided therapy in lower tract infections, you could reduce the use of antibiotics and you could uh, uh, safely do it without any increased outcomes in those patients who were in the procalcitonin guided therapy. And if I'm correct, some of these studies also showed that it was uh, procalcitonin levels, serial levels were also um, a correlated with prognosis and outcomes, so higher levels associated with either higher progressions to organ failure, shock, mortality. So that was also a prognostic uh, value in, in, in procalcitonin. And ultimately, I think there were a growing number of European studies that suggested that once you start antibiotics, if you followed a serial procalcitonins, and once they went below certain thresholds or a decrease of greater than 80%, you could also start stopping antibiotics without causing any harm. So that 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 was what basically the European experience was showing. Is that correct? Yes. Overall, with with, with just a couple of caveats in that sense. So the ICU trials were really pretty much focused on on. Uh, so the ED trials were focused um, uh, both on stopping initiation, like completely. Okay. As well as decreasing uh, a number of days, um, the ICU trials were very understandably mainly focused on just on just decreasing duration. As 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 if you just intubate somebody and they're febrile and on two pressors, like uh, 100 out of 100 doctors are going to start antibiotics no matter what. Um, and then the other caveat is that um, uh, only a couple. Of the ED and ICU trials were large enough to 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 really be powered for safety. Um, so I think as is is common in 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 a lot of what we study and with with studies with randomized studies and small trials, even though there was a growing body of literature and you look at different meta analysis, they were not all necessarily on the same page. And like you said, we didn't have all the answers. So cl clearly, there was also clinical equipoise in specific populations, and uh, even though the the approval we'll talk about by the FDA came in 2017 for the expanded indications, I presume since PROACT was published last this year, you started it much. You started it before the FDA had approved it. Can, can we maybe, um, before we talk about the FDA approval, dive into the trial? I'm just curious in terms of what was the rationale, how you were thinking about when you said we're going to study this, and maybe we can go uh, step by step into what you actually did with your with your with your team. Sure. Yeah. So, um, 
so when I and and my colleagues at Pitt and elsewhere started started really digging into the um, ED LRTR trials, you know, it was extremely impressive, very exciting um, from a from a patient care point of view. Like so, uh, um, you know, I did a residency in emergency medicine, and you know, it was it was just exhausting to to you know hand out antibiotics when in your gut you wonder do i really need to like like i'm i wonder if there's like a test to, that, that could sort of help me help me and help the patients um safely decrease uh, uh antibiotic exposure but as we started digging into it um we thought there were two key residual questions um from the swiss trials related to the EDLRTI population. Um, first is, will it work in the United States? So Prohosp, the largest trial, um, they very forthrightly state in the paper that they use enforcement methods um, in order to enforce uh, physician adherence to the protocol. So what that meant was that if, if the physician wanted to overrule the procalcitonin guideline, so for example, give antibiotics even though the procalcitonin was low, then they had to call the research center and ask for permission. Um, in addition, the treating doctors in the middle of their uh, ED shift uh, actually enrolled the patients into the study. Uh, as they forthrightly state in their method section. So, you know, I just didn't, I think even my best friends from my emergency medicine residency, um, I don't think, I don't think that they would do either one for me uh, in the middle of a really busy shift. Um, so, so that, so that basic question, will it work? With a different uh, uh, design that, at least I feel, is more realistic to to to, to U.S. practice, uh, really really popped out. And, and uh, I think David, that, that that's a, an important point because we often translate results of clinical trials right to clinical practice very quickly, or at least clinicians like to, and we extrapolate, but. You were very, 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 very on point there, where this was basically almost a protocol that was dictated and enforced, right? Whereas, I mean, it's a lot harder to do that in the outside of the confines of a very controlled clinical trial. In practice, physicians ultimately have the authority and the autonomy to order or not order the antibiotics, and I think that's what you were trying to to capture in your clinical trial, correct? Yes. Yes. Um... And besides the uh, autonomy issues, there were uh, uh, differences in background care. So the length of stay was was really long. So, for example, in ProHOSP, for, for, for community-acquired pneumonia, it was um, 10 to 12 days, versus on average, it's about five to six in the United States. And the antibiotic duration was also really long. It was about 11 days. Now, in their defense, their their reference was the 2001 uh, IDSA and ATS uh, CAP guidelines, which which um, which were much vaguer about antibiotic duration than the most current one, the 2008 ones, which are which really pushed um, trying to use a shorter course. Mm -hmm. um, so that was the first question: Will it work uh, in contemporary? care uh, in the U.S. and elsewhere, and, and, and honestly, elsewhere where, where where you don't have such enforcement and you don't have such long uh, antibiotic duration. And the second question was, uh, is it safe? Um, you know, anytime you don't give antibiotics, at least at least I always worry, um, you know, is, is that the right, is that the right call? Um, and uh, they use a somewhat wide called a non-inferiority margin um and their and their point estimate 
for for mortality was it wasn't it wasn't stats significant, but it, it was numerically a bit higher. So 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 I felt like the the safety issue wasn't entirely wrapped up. So for those two reasons, will it work and and is it safe? Those are the those are really the two core reasons why 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 we wanted to do uh, proact. So tell us a little bit. I mean, uh, just a in a summary, kind of what what did you actually do? I mean, obviously the the proact study was published earlier this year in you know, Journal of Medicine. There will be a link attached to the show notes. But uh, tell us, I mean, how. You set it up, I mean, with these two questions and I mean, main questions in mind. And it is the largest study that's been done in North America for sure. I don't know if it's larger than the European studies, but it, it is the most recent and largest clinical trial that has looked at this problem, right? Yes. Yeah, sure. So I'll, you want me to just sort of summarize yeah. the overall in a few minutes? Yep, that'd be great. Okay. So just conceptually, products was designed to answer a basic clinical question. Can procalcitonin help clinicians safely decrease antibiotic use in lower respiratory tract infection? Um, so it was, a, it was a two-arm trial, usual care versus procalcitonin, 14 US hospitals, um, mostly urban tertiary care academic centers. All of them had, all of them had done very well with with the old Joint Commission pneumonia core measures, and none of them routinely used procalcitonin. Um, and we had two aims, which basically mirrored the two questions. Um, will it work? Is it safe? Um, so we enrolled adult patients um, with a primary clinical diagnosis of acute LRTI. Um, and then really importantly, where there was diagnostic and decision-making uncertainty in the sense that the clinician was willing to consider procalcitonin in their antibiotic uh, thinking and decision-making. And the rationale there was because, you know, if, like, if the patient is, has, like, purulence coming out of multiple orifices, why would you order procalcitonin? waste of money, you obviously giving them lots of antibiotics. And conversely, if, the, oh, here's Mr. Jones again, well-known asthmatic, he comes in every two months, especially when he's gardening, okay, obviously you're not gonna give that person, um, obviously you're not gonna give that, you're not giving that person antibiotics either. Um, so so, so we, wanted to, we wanted to capture patients where, where an additional test might actually help guide management as opposed to just be a waste of money. Um, we, we, we enrolled them in the ED, and then we excluded um, really sick patients because we felt that, so, such as uh, endotracheal intubator or impressors, because we felt that basically n nobody is going to stop initiation of, of antibiotics on a patient who's really sick. So these were non-critically ill emergency department LRTI patients. Um, and then we also worked hard to disseminate national antibiotic guidelines, such as um, such as CDC and pretty much that for acute bronchitis you shouldn't give antibiotics ever for bronchitis because past procalcitonin papers trials have been criticized by saying, oh well, sure you reduced antibiotic use. That's because in, in usual care, um, patients were getting Z-packs like M&Ms. Yeah. Um, so we wanted to at least do our best to, to constrain that type of you know, gross antibiotic abuse. Mm -hmm. um, so then the intervention was just making sure that, that the doctors in the ED and the hospital looked at the procalcitonin value and recommendation, and then they could do whatever they wanted to do. Um, and we worked pretty hard at, 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 at implementing the, the protocol. Um, we had like pre-launch education during the trial. There was, there was a lot of um, uh, live um, education, but by the coordinators and at faculty meetings 
and then I reviewed every instance of of, of procalcitonin guideline non-adherence, and then uh, and then reviewed each instance with each site PI for each um, for each site, um, trying to try and do a a, a feedback loop. So, so before we go further, I just want to share with uh, with with our listeners. I mean, and I have it here from 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 your publication, the actual guideline. So I think that that gives a, a frame of reference, right? So basically, you had you had like you said, you shared with all the the, the clinicians the current guidelines for community acquired pneumonia, COPD, asthma, cuprocytis. Educated everybody, and like you said at the beginning. These are already high-performing uh, institutions that had very good data based on uh, uh, CMS and JCO uh, compliance with pneumonia bundles. So in terms of the guideline that you offered, um, you had three columns, procalcitonin level, where the, the, the likelihood of bacterial etiology, and then a recommendation that was linked to a clinical behavior. So if the procal level was below 0.1 micrograms per liter, you thought uh, the, the, the guideline would say that it was very unlikely to be bacterial and that antibiotics were strongly discouraged. If it was between 0.1 and 0.25 micrograms per liter, the likelihood of bacterial etiology was unlikely and the antibiotics were discouraged. If it was between 0.25 and 0.5, the likelihood of bacterial etiology was thought as likely and at that point antibiotics were recommended and if it was above 0.5 micrograms per liter, it was very likely to be bacterial. And the recommendation was that antibiotics be strongly uh, recommended. So that is basically the, the instructions that the clinicians had paired to the levels, correct? Yes. And, and we didn't make up this guideline. It's the same guideline used in the Swiss trials and the same guideline that was approved by FDA last year. Okay. So this is kind of like what's considered the standard from from that perspective. Yeah. Okay. Yep. So tell us what you found. Yeah. So. Uh, so I'll preface it by saying that um, as a doctor, I was very disappointed um, because I really, I really hope that that it would be a so-called positive trial. But as an investigator, the data are what the data are. Um, so <laughs> that's why we do a study, right? <laughs> yeah, uh, that's why we do the study. Um, yeah. <laughs> so what we found. So unfortunately, what we found, as, as, you, as, you, as I'm sure you already know, is that there really was no overall difference um, if you look at so our so 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 first of all we implemented the protocol uh, well um, in the sense that almost every time uh, the intervention was done correctly and that the procalcitonin level was drawn measured and quickly made available to the treating uh, doctors versus in usual care where only two percent had 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 any testing, so there was def so there was definitely um, a separation uh, in terms of administered treatments uh, between arms. Um, but there was no difference in the overall primary outcome of number of antibiotic days by day thirty, uh, four point two uh, versus four point three mean antibiotic days. Uh, with very similar results, no matter how you uh, analyze, whether intention to treat, per protocol, sensitivity analysis, et cetera. Uh, and then similarly, there were, there were no differences in, in adverse outcomes by day 30. So in other words, it, it didn't work, and unsurprisingly, it appeared safe. Um, in secondary outcomes, though, there was a possible signal in the sense that uh, antibiotic prescription in the emergency department for acute bronchitis was cut in half, 32% uh, in usual care, 17% in, in the ED. Uh, and this was, 
and this finding was robust to uh, a very strict uh, what's called a Bonferroni correction, which is which is when you correct for uh, what's called uh, multiple comparisons. So basically, if you look at 30 outcomes, the possibility of you finding something with the magic p less than 0.05 is much higher than if you just look at one outcome. Um, but this finding for acute bronchitis, even though it survived a rigorous Bonferroni correction, is a secondary outcome of a subgroup. So, so hard to hard to call it uh, uh, necessarily truth per se. And. And I think that, David, I mean, and I know that there's been follow-up uh, uh, letters to the editor not too long ago, I mean, and you've answered those. And one of the one of the letters actually pointed out about the cuprochitis population, which is a population that has been more heavily um, present in some of the uh, European studies, right? And which maybe, like you said, is an area where there's more over-prescribing of antibiotics. So that's that's one question. But but the other question that that I also had was what happened specifically with the people who we thought had pneumonia. Was there any uh, any differences there? Any comments you can make on on the pneumonia population? No, there was there was no signal for for um, antibiotic reduction in pneumonia. And and what are the things that I think are important is. In general, people will read a, an abstract or take a quick look at a study. Okay, say it's a negative study, right? But I think that, like you said, it, it is negative in terms that it, it didn't show a positive a decrease uh, in the use. But also, I think that what you were actually, what it actually tells us, is a little bit more nuanced than just somebody saying, "Well, I don't believe in procalcitonin," and David's study shows it doesn't really work. Can you comment on that a little bit more? Yeah, absolutely. So, um, so on, on October 27, in October 2017 was when uh, we finally unblinded, and after basically a decade of planning and thinking about Proact, I finally saw the results. Um, so after uh, going through the seven stages of grief. <laughs> uh, um, uh, I completely deleted and trashed my um, blank tables and figures, which I had drawn up for expecting uh, a so-called positive trial, and and then really went to work on try and understand this surprise finding. Um, you know, this might amuse you and your listeners, but prior to unblinding, uh, I surveyed the entire team, including all the site PIs, and uh, everybody except one uh, ex expected uh, expected to find antibiotic reduction. So this was this was a huge surprise to everybody. Um, but so then we went to work very hard to try and try and understand, and I think I think we understand it now. Um, and yes, this this stuff is is in the is in the manuscript text, uh, but it's not in the abstract in much detail because of uh, word limitations. So I think the first interesting thing was um, so we measured procalcitonin in the usual care group. We just didn't we just didn't show it. So so the first most compelling thing is that procalcitonin levels were associated with emergency department antibiotic prescription rates in both groups. So something like about, about three quarters of the patients presented with really low procalcitonin levels. So there was ample opportunity in the patient cohort for procalcitonin to work, so to speak. But in, that, in those three quarters of patients, whether or not the doctor saw the procalcitonin level, antibiotic prescription was basically the same. It was basically only about one-third uh, in each arm. Uh, and then if you go on the other extreme, for the for, for you look at the patients with really high pro, pro, procalcitonin levels, you saw the exact same phenomenon. 
whether or not the doctors saw the procalcitonin level, three quarters of them in each arm um, got antibiotics. Interesting. And in the middle, with the middle two tiers, yeah, maybe you start to see some some differences, but but the vast some differences in antibiotic prescription between arms, but the vast majority of patients presented in either the lowest or or the highest tier. So to me, that was sort of suggestive that um, that good doctors can sort of can sort of almost sense what the procalcitonin value is. Um, and then and then to so then once we saw that, uh, I decided to to look at clinical signs and outcomes and correlate them with, with procalcitonin level. Uh, so in 2008, we did an observational study of procalcitonin and cumulative pneumonia, and I found that in general, as procalcitonin level rose, so too did um, uh, severity scores and, and outcomes. And we found the exact same signal here. So for example, in the lowest procalcitonin tier, um, uh, number of SIRS criteria was one, actually 0 0.9, but then as you rose to the highest tier, it doubled to, to 1.7. Mm -hmm. uh, so I think in that context where procalcitonin is associated with how the patient looks and how the patient ultimately does, procalcitonin probably only provided modest incremental information to guide clinician decisions. And that's why, and that's why we saw that for emergency part antibiotic prescription, uh, whether or not you saw the procalcitonin, your actions were pretty similar. Mm -hmm. So that, that, that's, I think, uh, an important point, right? I mean, and I think that it also speaks to the evolution of, of care. <clears throat> and you were involved with the process trial as well, right? But I think that's another example of um, when you compare a trial that was done a decade earlier, right, like the Swiss trials, with with some different design issues, and then you do a different study like PROACT almost 10 years later, not only, I mean, the design is different, but also the clinical behavior has changed, right? I mean, people have molded their practices in different ways. And it seems that at least in, in, in the two extremes of those groups, it seems that the doctors were doing a better job and being congruent in terms of being coherent in their approach to either give or not give antibiotics. Yeah, I think so. I mean, at least in these 14 academic, there's like, yeah, at least in these 14 tertiary care centers. Um, but exactly. So if you look at the control groups of ProAct and ProHOSP, uh, we had much, we had much less antibiotic use. Now, ProHOSP Pro did have a sicker population with more, more pneumonia than, than we did. But that said, it's pretty dramatic. Like, so ProAct Pro control um, antibiotic duration was 4.3 days. And ProHosp was double, uh, 8.7. Yeah. But you know, ProHosp finished enrolling 10 years ago, and then since then, as we all know, there's this huge movement towards shorter courses. Yeah. So clinical um, practice is changing. I mean, is is evolving as we go along. Absolutely. Yeah. And then also, you know, so um, these these emergency departments were not handing out Z packs like candies. Which is which is a common criticism of of, um, of not only EDs but PCPs and everybody for acute bronchitis. So, in Proact, less than a third of patients with with acute bronchitis got antibiotics, but nationally, uh, it's more like seventy percent. Yeah. So these fourteen hospitals were were relatively judicious in in their antibiotic use. And I think that a lot of the, the issues that we that we discuss also speak to the limitations that these large randomized trials have. I mean, running these trials are not easy. Designing them is not easy. And everything you decide to include, it means that you exclude something else and everything has probably unintended consequences. So it's very difficult to, to foresee all of this. But I mean, like you said, I mean, the, the, the design, I, I think the design was, was phenomenal. I mean, you're trying to address important questions. And uh, our listeners can look at the at the study themselves, but the compliance with what was intended to be done and the follow up was phenomenal. So I think that, like you said, at the end of the day, uh, 
whether you, you were hoping for something positive and, and dramatic or not, the data is the data, right? And you, you have to kind of report that and kind of try to understand that. Yeah, uh, exactly, <laughs> exactly. So, so I think that David and and I know that a lot of the emphasis was on on um, like you said LRTIs and and the ED, but still very important for our critical care audience and for our uh, obviously our ED audience. But I do think that um, just to kind of as uh, kind of bring together what what your experience with the trial is, just to remind I mean our 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 listeners that at kind of at the same time that you were finishing your trial in 2017, what the FDA really did is expand the approval of the uh, procalcitonin assay to include, um, to be utilized as a clinical um, tool in conjunction with clinical findings for the decisions regarding starting and stopping of lower uh, respiratory tract infections and for the stopping of empiric uh, antibiotics or, or antibiotics in patients with sepsis, which is not the same, right? So, so there's no really FDA approval to decide, like you said, on a patient that comes in and is a multi-organ failure, is this high lactic acid, maybe a vasopressor, and, oh, should I, and you don't have a source, you think, oh, should I give or not antibiotics? That's not what we're talking about. We're talking about basically the population you studied, right, which is basically lower respiratory tract infections, and that includes COPD, asthma, cuprinchitis, and pneumonia, or in those who are starting antibiotics with sepsis, there are protocols that over time, if the procal drops below a certain level, usually below 0 0.3 or 0 0.25, you can safely stop the antibiotic, or if there's a drastic reduction of greater than 80%, also can help you shorten the duration. Um, and any comments from that perspective and how you see the use today yeah, so when FDA approved it in 2017, I um, I thought that was quite interesting, um, and I read the transcript of 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 the meeting, which was which was which was very helpful. Um, so they approved procalcitonin. FDA approved procalcitonin based on uh, a meta-analysis submitted by um, the manufacturer of procalcitonin. And, 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 it, and the FDA did forthrightly state that the primary limitation uh, associated with, with, the, with the meta-analysis was the lack of, of US trial sites. Um, but the overall feel was that you know, antibiotic resistance is, is such a huge problem. And, and, and they stated that uh, you know, although there's uh, two U.S. trials running, uh, Proact and then a different one, you know, they're they're not um, finished yet, and they needed to make a decision. Um, so I think it was understandable, given the the enormous enormous worldwide problem of antibiotic uh, uh, resistance, as to why FDA um, approved uh, PCT. Yeah. Um, uh, what was your second question, Serge? No, no, just talking about. So, so I think that uh, what I would say is just get your take on this because, from my perspective, and I want to, I want to hear your opinion. Um, what we do at Sound Critical Care is we take care of large volumes of patients in community hospitals, and I always say that in order for us to to say we're going to do this on a hundred thousand ICU patients or on a hundred thousand, you know, a large number of patients, the evidence has to be top notch, right? I mean, you really have to in order to mandate something. You have to feel very comfortable. I think there's still, I mean, there's a lot of good signals and good evidence, but I still were not there yet with mandating procalcitonin on everybody. And I think that current guidelines, like the surviving sepsis campaign and other institutions, are 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 moving along those lines and saying that there is evidence. This is what the evidence shows. If you're going to be an early adopter, there are certain things that you should consider. Right, so they're not saying that everybody should do it, but I also think a lot of people are are measuring their institutions procalcitonin. I think it's important for them to understand how to utilize it best if they choose to utilize it. So, from your perspective, David, are there any specific recommendations you can give our clinicians in terms of if they're going to use procalcitonin, when, and how to use it? Yeah, sure. So, uh, why don't we talk just a little bit about the ICU trials? Because Excellent. Yep. 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 Are, 
Yeah. So there's been um, a large number of ICU trials, um, but a lot of them were single center, um, you know, like less than 100 patients. Um, two of the largest ones were pro rata, 600, about 600 odd patients in France and SAPS in the Netherlands, that was about 1,600 patients. Um, um, and, and there are other uh, decently, decently uh, large studies as well. So I, I think, so first of all, yeah, so most of them were relatively small studies, except for Prorata, SAPS, and one or two others. Um, most of the ICU trials were in medical patients. Um, they did have logical exclusions such as immunosuppression, endocarditis, et cetera. Um, and then, uh, and then they all use different cutoffs. Like, so the 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 ED the trials pretty much all use the same guideline that PROACT used. But all the ICU ones are are all over the place. So like some of them use less than one microgram per liter. Some of them use less than 0.25. Some of them use the decrease from the baseline peak. It, it, it's really sort of a mixed bag. Um, and then. And then the overall, so there was a there's a there's a couple of meta analyses, but one of them basically said, but both actually, all of them basically said that if you if you look at them all together, um, the 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 average effect size is something like saving one to do antibiotic days, which is which is great. Um, well, no, I would say it's good. Um, but, but what really matters is decreasing antibiotic resistance. Mm -hmm. That's, that's really, that's really the societal goal. So, so if you take somebody from say an eight day course to a six day course, um, certainly you're saving money and certainly that's a good thing, assuming it's safe, um, which it probably is. Um, but but it's actually unknown if taking if saving two days will actually reduce antibiotic resistance, um, as opposed to in the ED where what what I and I assume every other ED trialist was after was if you could if you can convert somebody from uh, a five day ZPAC to nothing, then then you can take it as a matter of faith that yes you reduced antibiotic resistance but so i think that's that's probably my overall concern with with procalcitonin's true true utility in the icu are you really going to move the needle on resistance yeah and i think it's a, it's a very fair i mean point i mean like the the difference between decreasing the number of days versus a binary exposure yes or no right that's might be a big difference and, uh, and 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 it might take maybe a much bigger effect if, if it is the case that it doesn't make a difference, but we have no proof that that is the case, which is, I think, a very good point. Yeah, so so I think, um, so that's my interpretation, at least, of the ICU evidence. So, uh, in, so overall, I, I kind of agree with what the, what the current SSC guidelines say, which it was it was something like a, we suggest that PCT can be used to, sh to shorten duration. You know, it was one of those you know weak recommendations, but you know not, it wouldn't be crazy to, to use it. Yeah, so I have them um, here, so I'll just share them with the with the with the audience. So they had two recommendations on PCT, and one, like you said, David, we suggest that measurement of procalcitonin levels can be used to support shortening the duration of antimicrobial therapy in sepsis patients. And as you stated, it's a weak recommendation with low quality of evidence. And the second one, uh, number 15, says, we suggest that procalcitonin levels can be used to support the discontinuation of empiric antibiotics in patients who initially appear to have sepsis, but subsequently have limited clinical evidence of infection. Weak recommendation, low quality of evidence. So again, like they're saying is, you could use it, but we're not saying that everybody should use it, and there are some caveats to it. Yeah, exactly. So... Um, yeah, so if, so, so if you ask me what should, uh, what should somebody do 
right now in the ICU. Um, so, first of all, as an as, as an as an academic, I have to uh, state that now I'm switching hats and speaking as a doctor because everything I'm saying now is speculation, of course. Um, but I think uh, I think first of all, you shouldn't order it like all the time. Uh, it shouldn't be done routinely. Uh, and but I could imagine a strong doctor who's already done the basics, the history, the physical, I've looked at everything else, and and is still kind of uncertain, that you could imagine that in certain situations, it, it, it's sort of like swans. So there's been now, what, 10 negative trials of swans, mm-hmm. but we still swan some people. And it's it's kind of hard to quantify exactly when a good doctor will swan, but but certainly nobody is saying we should just throw swans in the garbage. Yep. Um, so 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 I think there are situations where a strong doctor uh, could reasonably, as an, as an early adopter, as you said, Sergio, order a procalcitonin. But then also you have to be ready to act on it. So it's a bit like the Choosing Wisely campaign. Um, and I, I saw an editorial on. Um, Viscoelastic testing, so TEGs, and the the title was something like, um, "It's not the test, it's the action," which again immediately reminded me of, of the great Swan debates from about 15 years ago. Yep. Um, it, so, what changes it, with the information? That's the real question, right? Yeah, exactly. So, if on a select non-routine patient you decide to order it then you have to be yeah like, like with anything like is it worth sending this intubated patient an 80 percent antenna peep down the hall to the ct scan well it is if you're going to change management but if you're not going to change management you better not get that scan yeah i agree and and what about uh, incorporating your PCT use into a antibiotic stewardship program? There's been a lot of discussion, and some of the letters to the editor also talked about that. Um, any comments on that? Yeah. So uh, you know, I remember when the stewardship program was first introduced um, at Pitt, and and at first, I mean, I'll just speak personally. At first, I was like, "What? Like, what is this?" what is this, you know, hoop, hoop that we have to jump through? But then the, but, but then gradually I, I saw that, you know, this is a wonderful thing. It really is. Uh, first of all, you, first of all, it's almost like a, <laughs> it's almost like a curbside consult for, for ID. Um, but overall, yeah, like, I think we need to be restricted. Um, so w- one of the, one of the, a letter to the editor basically said, um, how come you didn't combine it with a stewardship program? And I basically said, um, uh, because that will be testing two interventions, yeah, which is completely different design and, uh, and a really heavy, and it, it, so number one, it's a completely different design and, and doing two interventions is much bigger in scope than, than one. But if you already have, an antibiotic stewardship program, um, then you might imagine that in, that folding procalcitonin into it might be more effective. Um, and, there's, and, there's, and there's some papers uh, that that suggest that that's true. Um, so one thing that we didn't touch on, but I, I guess would be valuable since we're talking about potential clinical application and based on the evidence and, and and what you learn from the trial, um, there are certain conditions that are associated with elevations in the baseline procalcitonin that are not related to infection, right? And those, I think, were exclusions in some of your in, in your study. Can you mention some of those, David? Sure. So um, this is not an exhaustive list, but in the study, I chose to exclude relatively common conditions. Where, where PCT can be high without infection. So, uh, so for example, chronic dialysis. Mm-hmm. Um, and again, not every paper says this, but 
but but certainly at least the time when I designed the trial with my colleagues, there there was enough to make me nervous enough to exclude them. Um, so like so so, so I'm sorry. And what I, what I mean by high is greater than 0 0.25 um, so, uh, microgram. Yeah. So they would compromise the lower the lower extreme, which is the one that's useful in saying don't give antibiotics. That's right. Yeah. That's right. So. Uh, high in the ED, maybe low in the ICU. Correct. You know? um, so, so chronic dialysis, um, a metastatic cancer, and then recent surgery. Uh, so, so if you were being an early adopter and you nonetheless decided to order procalcitonin in these conditions, um, particularly surgical patients, you have to recognize that their their baseline level is going to be higher than than somebody else's and then and then there's also uh, certain types of thyroid cancer where procalcitonin is high not 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 every type of thyroid cancer though cool well i think that it this is obviously a, still a, a an unsettled topic i think that because it's readily available and people use it or misuse it maybe we're going to probably hear more about it but i think that like uh, I want to first, I mean, thank you for your time, but also for the effort of trying to study this in a very uh, scientific way. And even though the 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 sometimes the findings are not what we expect or what we hope for, like you said, I mean, understanding the data is the key of, of really doing evidence based medicine. So that was very very useful. But one of the things that we like to do in our podcast, David, is at the end kind of ask some questions that are not related to the specific topic and just tapping into the wisdom of our of our guest would that be okay sure so the first question is what book uh, has influenced you the most or what book have you gifted most often to others um i think there's two books that stand out uh, the first is the seven habits of highly effective people um where i think from that book the single most important message is that we don't spend enough time in what 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 Dr. Covey calls the uh, type two quadrant of activities, which is um, important but non-urgent. So he has an exercise in the book where he says, write down three activities that you know if you did consistently for the next year. So like a New Year's resolution, perhaps, um, given that it's December 6th right now, uh, you know would improve your life. And it's always stuff like, exercising more, flossing more, um, spend more time with my family. So all those things are, are important, but, but they're not urgent, like a cardiac arrest or a grant deadline or whatever. So it's very easy to not do important but not urgent things. And I think um, that this is a super, super applicable to a – to medicine and healthcare in general today. So we work with a lot of hospital partners throughout the throughout the country. And I think that one of the problems with a lot of our hospital administrations, and that occurs in academic centers too, is that there is a tremendous emphasis on what's urgent. The last state uh, visit or Jayco's coming next week. And and I think that sometimes we, we undervalue or undermine what's important, which is building quality programs that are going to be everlasting and really move care forward. So I think that we do both, I mean, in general, but I think sometimes the emphasis switches too much to what's urgent. And I think that's a great, a great lesson. And we'll definitely link this book at the, and the show notes. What's the second one? Second one, it's, it's called Partners of the Heart, written by um, uh, Dr. Vivian Thomas. So very briefly, the famous Blaylock Taussig shunt, so the world's first heart operation um, for, in, in this case, was for the famous, uh, they call them the blue babies for Tetralogy of Fellow. It, it should be called the Blaylock Taussig Thomas shunt. So Blaylock was the surgeon, Taussig was the pediatrician, female pediatrician, and Vivian Thomas was the um, no college education African-American lab technician 
who did little minor things like create the dog model for Tetralogy of Philo. <laughs> and uh, and when Blaylock became chair, he actually it was it was Thomas who did all the operations in the lab, such that um, when Dr. Blaylock did the world's first heart heart operation, he he literally told Thomas to stand on a step step stool behind his right shoulder, and told him to walk him through the operation. <laughs> yeah, I mean, this, yeah, interesting, right? <laughs> it, and it's it's amazing. So the HBO did a, a docudrama on it called um, "Something the Lord Made," based off of a quote where when Dr. Blaylock felt the uh, vascular anastomosis that, that 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 Thomas had had made in the dog, like it was so smooth that he was like, "My God, this is like this anastomosis is like something God made." Wow. Uh, and when I saw the the docudrama, I was like, this is too crazy to be true. So I heavily researched it. I got biography and like it is a hundred percent it is one hundred percent true. Uh they only they changed one little minor historical detail at the end, but the rest is completely true. Um and um yeah, it hundred percent it should be called the 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 Blaylock Taussig Thomas shunt. Which is interesting, like how every every story has so many layers that we, we don't necessarily know. And I think that's also something that we, we learn when we talk with the investigators who run these trials. We read them, but there's a lot of things that go behind scenes, thought process into the whole design that, that I think it's interesting to, to understand. So these two will be referenced at the show notes. I mean, I, I have not read Partners of, of, of the Heart, but definitely have an interest in that. So definitely we'll, we'll look it up. The second question, David, is what do you believe to be true in medicine or in life that most other people don't believe? Um, what do I... Give me a minute here, Sergio. <laughs> <laughs> most other people... Um, Well, and I think that one of the things that you mentioned that would be an extension of the seven habits of highly effective people is the importance of focusing on what is important versus urgent, right? So figuring out, I guess, uh, and a lot of people don't see that. Everybody's always busy with what's urgent, the next emergency. But ultimately, the more energy we spend in that quadrant, probably the better for ourselves and also for the people we're trying to, to help. But uh, I, th I think that, uh, that, that that would be kind of an example, I think, of of, of what I consider things that are true, but most people don't believe, or if they believe it, they don't act on it. Yeah, fair enough. Yep. So what would you want every intensivist who's listening to this podcast to know in closing anything in particular could be related to PCT or anything else that, that is important for you? Um, I think the, well, I guess related to PCT, I, I think the Choosing Wisely campaign is probably one of the best things to come out of organized medicine in the last 10, 20 years. Uh, it's not another controversial uh, maintenance of certification <laughs> exam, but actually something that really is a strong clinical uh, use um, and I think I think um, you know choosing when to order procalcitonin wisely um, is just a it, it fits very well into the overall choosing wisely campaign I agree and I think in terms of when you choose or when you order a test I mean using that to make meaningful impact on the patient so I think there are so many data points that we order that cost money, can cause problems that we don't utilize or we're not going to utilize. And I think it's just, I mean, wasteful and low value care for our patients. Yeah. And, you know, one last thought, like, I don't want to be uh, nihilistic about procalcitonin. Like, if you think about it, you know, so like, you know, we have such an intense troponin envy, but like, Cardiologists are, everybody's still arguing over 
how to best use troponin in 2018. Yeah. And and heck, we still don't know exactly when when and who and how to order mammograms. <laughs> so so the whole area of of testing research and and how to test the test, um, you know, procalcitonin is just one small part of that overall yeah. um, clinical and and academic struggle of how do you test the test and when should you actually order that test and on who and 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 how often. So it's going to take a lot more both research and experience to figure out when to order prostate-specific antigen, when to swan, when to order mammogram, and when to order procalcitonin. And I think that that's a perfect place to, to stop. I, I really want to thank you, David, for your time, for being so generous with uh, with all your knowledge and walking us through, I mean, the, a wonderful trial that, even though it's negative, I think taught us taught us a lot about implementation of, of change in, in clinical practice. And uh, hope to have you again on the podcast soon. Great. Thanks a lot, Sergio. Thanks again for listening to Critical Matters. Make sure to subscribe to this podcast on iTunes or Google Play.